Hi, everyone, and welcome to All Things Creative. I'm your host, Linda Riesenberg Fissler. And today we're going to be talking about challenging yourself. And I've asked a, a good friend and fellow artist, Carolyn Anderson, to join us. Hello, Carolyn. How are you? Hi, hi there, Linda. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, it's good talking to you, too. It's, um, it's been a while, I think. So, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. at least on the show, anyway. I know that you and I talk um, outside of this. But, yeah, so... So cool. Thanks for coming on again. I appreciate it. We've had you on the past and um, you've talked about color relationships and mastering edges. And I don't I think there's a third one out there, too, that I'm forgetting right now. But um, this will probably this is your fourth visit. So thank you so much for for coming back on. Well, thanks for having me again. Yeah. So today we're, as I said, going to be talking about challenging yourself and um, we've been talking back and forth in email and um, had some questions out there that, that were just kind of out there um, that we're, we'll be working from. So we're going to jump right in for that. And um, I, I, one of the first things I think that we, we talked about was somewhat color and color relationship. It's, it's more about um, just in general of challenging yourselves you know we get into a, a comfort zone and we tend to stay there and we don't really push ourselves and and i don't think that's just limited to color but it, it certainly in my teaching i see a lot of students who you know mix the same colors paint with the same colors because it's comfortable. Yeah, do the same thing over and over again right right because it's comfortable and it's like well i know i can handle this color or i know i can handle this value or you know whatever so one of the things um, i wanted to ask you was could you possibly suggest um, how we can stretch ourselves when it comes to the different things. If you want to start with color, that's fine. If you want to start with someone, something else, that's fine as well. But, um, you know, we, we tend to do it mindlessly. So help us out. How can we, how can we challenge ourselves? <laughs> yeah, I think one of the problems that we run into is that <clears throat> we look for a comfort zone, and it's basically a control plan, if you will. You know, so we figure if we stick with that, then, you know, we kind of keep control on things and it and it should make everything easier. But in fact, it kind of tends to make things more difficult. It takes a little bit of the fun out of painting. So I think one of the most important things we can do is just understand how basic a value pattern and a color pattern is to giving us our plan, mm -hmm. you know, something to work off of. So value, obviously, most important in the sense that it's primary component of, of vision. Mm -hmm. And it's probably the easiest thing to see, you know, lighter, darker. Right. So, the, you know, if we can get a handle on our value pattern and then um, try and attack our color pattern or at least have a sense what it is that we're working with, that should give us a little bit more freedom to play with stuff because there's no real right or wrong on that so the thing is though that you know color like values needs to be managed in some kind of organized way so color has a pattern it doesn't just jump around randomly in real life and probably shouldn't do so on the canvas mm -hmm. so that's why identifying the light source and whether it's cooler or warmer can form a basic pattern of organization so just we, you know, as we create like a value pattern, for example, then if we get a handle on our color pattern that way, then it here again, it just gives us a little bit more room to play with. So if we identify the light, the light in the shadow pattern created by the light, and then um, hopefully a general idea of the pattern of warmer, cooler colors created by the light. Now we have our basic map of information, and that's the that's the reference we can always go back to. Mm -hmm. So, because I run into a lot of students who will have trouble identifying a color, for example, you know, so they'll play it safe. You know, you grab like the black to tone something with, or maybe a raw umber or whatever it is, instead of playing with the compliments. But if you have a sense of where your warmer and cooler colors are because of the light and shadow pattern, then that should allow you some space to say, hey, what the heck, this is, this is cooler Maybe I'm seeing a little more blue. Let's just turn it that way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, or it could be violet. It could be whatever it is. But but that's that's the basic the basic pattern. And I think that's the thing we need to start with on a painting. And then we can hang everything off of that. And then that here again, it just gives you more room to move the colors around a little bit more. So we have to understand though there are issues here. 
And <laughs> one of them is the, when we've talked about this before, but it's worth saying again. Absolutely. So, yeah, color is um, it's a strange little thing. So it just creates a whole other level of complexity that can be really confusing. So in theory, color simple. Uh, Newton discovered it 300 years ago, that there is only so much of the light spectrum that is visible to the human eye. But that pretty much that simplicity pretty much begins and ends there because the way people perceive and interpret color is a whole nother mess of information. So, you know, we don't all necessarily interpret color the same. You know, we could say scientifically we see color pretty much the same, but we don't interpret it the same. So if you understand that there's really no right nor wrong in this whole mix, then how you... Uh, not only let's well i won't say see the pattern but how you interpret that pattern of information that light and shadow that warmer cooler will um allow you to do a little bit more personal information if it is if we want to call it that so so that that whole idea of understanding the idea that that color is so can be so complicated because it's tied up with perception Right. And it's tied up with personal preferences and, you know, there's all kinds of things going on there that if we here again, just hang it off that pattern of warmer, cooler, and then with our values, lighter, darker, we can, we can play with the color. Right. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to like go out on a limb here and use me as a, as, as the student, so to speak. Um, okay. Because interpret, I think, I think you just solved something for me that, you know, when I'm standing next to someone else and I'm painting, unless uh, uh, outdoors, indoors, it doesn't matter from photograph. It doesn't matter. And I say something like, you know, oh, you missed this green color here. And the per other person says that isn't green. That's some of that's mm -hmm. that's our different interpretations. Right. It's not exactly. OK, yeah. great. And I was just I, in fact, it's just interesting because I came across an article this morning that was talking about. See, the linguists get involved here when we start talking <laughs> about color, which is kind of right. fascinating. Right. But anyway, it was a study done on multiple different languages across the world about warmer, cooler colors and what, how we describe them and what words we use to describe them mm -hmm. with. And they found that the, the warmer colors, which would probably make sense because I guess we like warmth, um, there are lots more words for warmer colors, but people get really confused when you start getting into the blues, the cooler colors. Right. So, yeah, and, and they found this in that scientific study, and that's basically what you just said. Yep. So there's a reason for it, and, and it's probably it's one of description more than anything else um, because we do have more words for warmer colors, for example, so we're more likely to kind of – uh, meet in the middle, so to speak, when we're talking about warmer colors. But when it comes to cool colors, um, no, not so much. Huh, okay. But I guess that, I mean, when I think back to when we were going up through grade school and, and kindergarten even, and, and I always say this to, to my students, is it's like, okay, how many times do you guys paint tree trunks brown? And you're just like, uh -huh. you know, and they just kind of sit there and look at me like, look outside. That tree trunk is not brown. But it's like nobody gave them permission. And I harp on this a lot, I know. So I uh -huh. apologize to my listeners. But, you know, I think a lot of it is is just that, okay, somebody told me it's that color. So I'm going to slap that color up here when instead of just saying, what does that what does it look like to me? Which I think is then in a way challenging yeah. yourself to see, to interpret that's, differently. That's definitely where language interferes Here's with how with we see. Yeah. Yeah. So when we, um, you know, we, we create symbols for ourselves, for things. And that's one of the, the a lot of that stuff that, that we learned when we were kids, so to speak, how to organize our visual world, mm -hmm. if you will. It, it, it's, a, it's a carryover. So, yeah, tree trunks, you say tree trunks and people just think brown. And because they think brown and they see brown, I found that one of the, the best ways to show people color is to find, it's just like in value, you find the most obvious areas. So in value, it's going to be your lightest light and your darkest dark. Mm -hmm. And so in color, we go from one extreme to the other. So warmer, cooler. So if you can find anything that screams, let's say, uh, a warmer color and a cooler color, 
you point those out. And then once you do that, then you say, now look at that tree trunk. What can you see? Mm. And generally, see, once we start making those comparisons, we pick the most obvious and then we go to the less obvious. Then people can all of a sudden start saying, oh, well, you know, for example, that's going more orange or it's a tanning orange or it's whatever it may be. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So pick the obvious and then compare. Okay. Yeah, we trick the yeah. brain into seeing more information that way. Yeah. And one of the things that I always stumbled over and, and when Kevin was mentoring me, Kevin McPherson was mentoring me and mm -hmm. I was working with him, we would always argue over what color clouds were. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, don't you see that coral? And I'm like, they look white to me, Kevin. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So. Learning to see color really is a process of learning. Mm -hmm. You know, just like the the whole act of painting is a process of learning, learning to see color is. But you can you can shorten that whole process up by looking for the most obvious information and then comparing. Right. Yep. Yeah, he tried that a couple times with me. And again, I, this was at the beginning of my, <laughs> <laughs> this was at the beginning of my you know painting um, plain air and and actually just really starting to learn. So I. Uh -huh. I, you know, seeing was not a part that was part of my part of everybody's yeah. journey, seeing color, seeing, you know, drawing mistakes, seeing whatever um, you, you have to basically tune that eye to to really see those things, which kind of leads us into our, our next question. But um, it's, it is important to keep our eyes sharp. And if we get away from something for a while, we may not be seeing color exactly the way we were when we, you know, maybe stopped painting because of a, you know, an emergency or an issue or something, but that mm -hmm. it's getting us back into that, that shape. Um, and I, I think I talked to you a little bit about, you know, musicians, a couple of musician friends of mine talk about these exercises that they go through just so they can get their fingers nimble and, and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, was wondering, what can we do to keep our eyes accurate? What can we do to, to, you know, are there little like exercises that do you do anything specific? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, probably no, but not. You paint, you paint a lot. I mean, you're painting yeah, all the time. And, right? and so. that's, that's the biggest thing about um, painting. I think, I think the big thing, um, first of all, you have to remember what, what practice, what kind of skill set that applies to. Right. So, you know, because doing something over and over again does not always make you better at it, especially for some of the process of what we use in painting. Now, mm -hmm. for musicians, obviously it does. That's a well-defined area of expertise. So it allows them to perform the same piece of music over and over again. And, of course, you know, the repetition of notes and, you know, there's a lot of muscle memory going on there. Um, but, you know, imagine if a musician had to write the music and perform it each and every time they play, you know, instead of just playing something over. So there's there's exercises that would apply, obviously, to musicians and, and other areas of expertise. You know, sports is an example. Right. You know, I mean, throwing a, a basketball into a hoop. I mean, there's a, you know, you're going to have to do that a lot to get really good at it. But because of, of how we operate in the realm of creating things just about each and every time, it's, it's kind of difficult to come up with deliberate practice. But I think the most important thing to do is really just to do a lot of sm small studies. Because a lot of times people sit down in front of a big canvas and they're going to do a painting, and you aren't going to learn from that. You're going to learn from doing a whole bunch of small studies that don't carry high expectations. Mm -hmm. And so anything like that, you're going to improve skills in your drawing and your color mixing, uh, brush technique, and your ability to see things differently. So if you, if you approach those as uh, just practice and exploration, not as a finished product, and set a time limit if you have to so you don't overwork them, then you're you're likely to increase your skill set immeasurably in just the basics that we use while we're painting. Right. One of because the, we're dealing with variables. You know, right. we can't separate out the little pieces as easily as, a, let's say, a musician could. Yeah, absolutely. It's a little hard to get the same sunlight effect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's just so many variables. And then besides that, I mean, you can practice, let's say, painting clouds. Okay, but you want you don't want to just do it. You you can't make it up all the time. You've got to reference it to how you're seeing that information. Right. So it still comes down to studies. I 
you know, when people sit down and they, they decide that they're going to learn, let's say, figure drawing, what is it that they do? They get themselves a whole bunch of cheap paper, you know, because they know they're going to throw most of this stuff away. Right. Um, if, you know, and hopefully they have some kind of figure drawing um, studio work that they can attend, you know, at least once a week, if not more often. And they go and they just draw and they draw and they draw and they draw some more. You know, and that works great for figure drawing. Doesn't necessarily work that same way for painting, and that's why those small studies are so critical. Right. Yeah. It's it, the miles of canvas is is what we always talk about. Um, yeah. When we do but talk it, about that it. doesn't mean big finished paintings. No, it doesn't. You know, we we don't learn a lot from that process. You only learn when you're basically making mistakes and screwing up and trying different things. That's when you learn. Right. One of the things that, that I do uh, with some of my beginner um, students is they'll, they'll always be, uh, st you know, trying to mix a color that they can't get. And of course, I you naturally help them. But one of the things that we do is I go to the paint store and I find little those little strips of paints, colors, uh -huh. and I cut those up and I mean, this just helps like beginner students just try to expand right. their palette yeah. a little bit more. And I just say, okay, here's a color, mix it up. Here's a color, mix it up. And then they, you know, right. it, and it's interesting because then they'll spend like half the class trying to get to that color. But I look at it and I say, okay, when you think, you know, when you're getting frustrated, put that aside, start over again. And they have this little, like, now they have some, some muscle memory, if you will, of how they started to make colors and different colors than what they're usually mixing. So, mm -hmm. um, so it's an interesting thing. And I, and I find myself going back to that every once in a while. It's like, okay, I'm well, going to break for, myself out of my typical palette, you know? Right. For beginner students, you've got to get them started somewhere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you give them something that they can do that's manageable. But right. the thing that one has to remember is that color on your canvas doesn't list, uh, live in a vacuum. Right. It's, it's has to do with what other colors are on the canvas. So, for example, if you have all warm colors on your canvas, now you've lost the ability to assess the warm colors, the warmer colors, because there's nothing cooler on there to give it its identity. It's just as if you painted a canvas black, mm -hmm. you know, and how black is it? Well, I don't know. I have nothing to compare it to. So color is pretty much the same way. And you can really um, alter the effect of color if, you, if you've ever painted uh, flowers, for example, let's let's pick uh, pink peonies or pink uh, petunias. Oh, some of those are great. You know, those ones that they come oh. in those brilliant colors that who knows how you could ever match them anyway. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the thing is, you don't get that effect of the pink just by trying to match that identical color to the flower. You get the effect of the pink by what's around right. it, because that's how we're seeing that information. Right. So, you know, it'll look brilliant depending on what kind of light is hitting it and what else is around it. And, and that's what you need to do with your paint. So I think the important thing is just that, first of all, you understand that the, the science of light and color is additive. Okay. The science of pigment is subtractive. So there are two different sciences mm -hmm. of, of how color works. And if you accept that, you don't have to understand it, but if you accept that, then you realize that you can never really match the color that you're seeing anyway, mm -hmm. because pigment is never going to match it. But you can create the illusion of what you're seeing, and then if necessary, and maybe even more important, is to either tone it down or exaggerate it. That's right. the fun part. Right. So I'm going to throw a question at you, Carolyn, and I apologize because it's it's not one that we really talked about, but I want to talk about it a little bit, and that is the importance of grade down colors or gray colors, if you will, mm -hmm. in in the in a painting because it's kind of a restful spot for the eye, and it also helps with what you're saying, what's around it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So. Um, you know, it's difficult to pull off a painting that is just all garish color. Right. Um, because it's it's like too much information, just TMI, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. your eye just doesn't know where to rest, so to speak. Um, so it's just like uh, values. You could do a black and white painting just using black and just using white, nothing in between. You could do that. But you really wouldn't have as much information in there as 
probably one would like, right? Right. But if you start introducing a, a few middle values or a few other values in there, now you're going to have a lot more dimension and depth and information into that painting. And color is pretty much the same thing. Mm -hmm. So you can use a few notes of, you know, really bright color or even more notes than that. But as long as you throw a few of those neutrals in there, it's, it's going to be a lot richer. So, for example, um, the thing to keep in mind is that a lot of times people say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not seeing anything except gray or tan or however they want to describe it. But here again, if you go back to that idea of pick out your obvious color, your mm -hmm. strongest warmer color and your strongest cooler color, now look to that area. You know, go from one area to the next. And that's how we can see um, whether or not that so-called gray color um, tends towards orange or yellow or red or blue, whatever it may be. But you don't see it when you isolate it as, a, as a, just a spot, just staring at it for too long. Mm -hmm. You'll never figure it out that way. You have to go to more obvious color notes and then go back to it. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So that there's a challenge <laughs> right yeah. there. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. Once you get in the habit of doing that, that's, that's almost a practice thing that, you know, you just do it pra while you're working. Mm -hmm. But once you get in the habit of doing that, it's second nature. And that's how you look at the information. You don't have to stop and think, okay, let me find something else. I've done that successfully with students so many times with the model on the model stand. And they're looking at, let's say, the shadow being cast by the head down on the person's shirt. And they're going, oh, I can't see anything in there. It just, you know, it just looks gray or something. And so what I'll do is take them to something that's more obvious. A lot of times you can point out, let's say, the warmer color on the cheeks and the nose. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, okay, you, do you see that color? And they'll go and, yeah, okay, now look to that shadow. And then all of a sudden they'll be able to see it. They'll be able to see the color in there. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. It's fun. It is, yeah, and it's a th and it is amazing how your brain struggles to see it, and then all of a sudden it's like you can't see it, and like you so you push it out, and also it's like, well, was that always in there? Or you know, well, we our brains kind of have shortcuts for seeing color. It right. goes back to the tree trunk, mm -hmm. oh, brown, brown, apple, yeah. red, you know, mm -hmm. all those mm -hmm. kind of good things. And so, unless we go actually, you know, working to see that, we don't see it. We right. really, we really don't, but you can trick the brain into seeing it if you compare your colors. Yeah. It takes us back to the thought that, um, that one national geographic, um, brain series that was out there. Uh huh. Yeah. That you, we talked about right. on, on one of the last, I don't remember what it's called. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember it either, but it, it, we ended up watching it and was like, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Just totally. Yeah. 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 yeah no, these are. This is, this is that visual information. Get rid of the idea that we see everything like some kind of camera because we don't. Yeah. Your brain interprets the visual information and it doesn't always, well, most of the time, it doesn't give you all the information. But there are little tricks that you can use to see more information. And once you do that, then those nondescript grays become a whole new world. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, they're so important. That's it's amazing it's yeah, like, it makes the color thing yeah you know yeah it's, otherwise a painting someone like someone screaming at the top of their lungs all the time instead of you know getting some nuance somewhere right right so the, let's um switch gears a little bit here um and okay. talk about finding our own voice and how do we know we found it number one and um you know should we be doing something that maybe challenges us as, to keep us going because I know a lot of times we find our voice and it's just like, Oh, that's me. <laughs> and, and there is a difference, I believe mm -hmm. between style and voice. Oh, well, so, there's a thought. Yeah. We might have to talk about that one in depth, but yeah, you know, I kind of, I kind of go with style and voices, the, the same thing. Mm. So what difference are you seeing first of all, before we start here? Well, uh, style to me is, is, I think a lot more limiting than a, a voices. So if I'm constantly painting mountains. Oh, okay. okay. I get where you're going with that. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you're talking about style as something that is almost uh, based more on technique. Yes. And voice would be something that would carry through an entire career, even as the technique changed. Yes. You got it. Okay. 
Okay. Well, <laughs> and it may be right and it may be wrong. So <laughs> no, no, I think that's valid. That's a that's okay. a you know that's a valid separation. Okay. Um, so you know, I think the big thing is that um, people get too caught up in um, other people's information. Now, mm-hmm. I get that it's a great learning experience. We can learn a lot from other painters and other paintings, for example. Right. But at some point you have to decide what it is that is most important to yourself and then stick with it and don't get sidetracked. So if we try and we paint with our own vision about what it is that we like and don't like, what looks interesting and what doesn't look interesting, and then avoid, try to avoid what we think other people want or think is good, Mm-hmm. then we should be sneaking up on some kind of semblance of uh, our own voice, if you will, or a semblance of a style. I'm going to use those two words interchangeably, even though we just decided they're different. That's okay. So it, it, a lot of it comes down to um, how we make marks, for example, you know, what kind of, not just what kind of marks we like. Well, it comes down to what kind of marks we like. It's, it's our signature, if you will. Mm-hmm. So we all have different signatures. We all learn to write letters the same way. Right. And then we learned cursive basically the same way. And then at some point, as we got older, we ended up with a signature that, you know, by and large, we kind of stick with. It probably gets messier as we get older, but it's pretty much our signature. We each, we each have a different signature. Mm-hmm. So this, you know, if you consider that painting is mark making, then right there we should be on a start to having a little bit of personal preference for what kind of marks we make. And then we get into the whole color thing. So we have different likes and dislikes about color, right? Mm-hmm. You know, some of us like some colors and dislike other colors and so forth and so on. <clears throat> and then we have um, likes and dislikes about um, subject matter, you know, all kinds of things. So if you, if you kind of try and force yourself to follow what it is that you like. I like to say that I try and avoid painting what I don't like because I'm going to leave the like thing open-ended a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, if that makes sense, it makes perfect sense to me because I keep thinking, well, you know, maybe I just haven't hit on something. I, you know, there's something new out there I haven't found, but I, I kind of know what I don't like. And so I try and avoid that. And so, you know, I can look at somebody else's painting, for example, and recognize it as being interesting and being good, but not want to go to the place where I say, gee, I want to paint something like that. Right. Because I have to recognize that just isn't what I do. Mm-hmm. So I think the whole finding that style is is just keyed up into that, um, you know, personal taste thing. And you just have to be strong enough to say, you know, hey, no, I like that, but that's not what I want to do. And then if you really like something, you want to figure out why you like it, but that's a whole other thing. So <clears throat> if the thing about um, uh, painting, because we're dealing with a combination of uh, technique and creativity. So we basically, you know, a lot of people work towards expertise with the, the technique and kind of skim over the creativity part mm-hmm. because that technique kind of gets into a little bit more of the practice patterns, if you will, you know, like uh, academic drawing or something like that. So if, but if we think, you know, painting is um, some kind of in game where it's just a one about mastering expertise. Now we have one kind of painting there. Um, and I'm not saying it's bad, good, or indifferent, but that's one type, you know, just the one based on expertise. But if we think that painting is maybe a little bit more than that, that it carries a, an essence of something that we can't always explain, now we're moving into the creativity part. And so um, that's the part where our individual preferences for what it is that we like and don't like really kind of enters into the fold. Right. So... Yeah, so if if we figure that painting should carry, let's say, an expectation of creativity and exploration, we have to understand, number one, being creative can be messy, okay? There should be lots of trial and error, and there will probably be lots of failures because, you know, if you're going to try and rise above, you can't play it safe. That's the whole thing about that. 
um, expertise thing. Sometimes it's just something to grab onto and you can play it safe and boy, I'm just getting really good at doing this. And so it goes, but you know, being creative is not necessarily, um, doesn't work that way. So if you, if you want to have something that really surprises you, that moves your work in a different direction, or you go, yeah, boy, I can't believe I did that. Then you have to be willing to do stuff that falls on its face. And then we have the control thing that enters in there. You know, if you're afraid of that kind of um, failure, then um, then you might latch on to the expertise thing, and then that might come down to just copying someone else's motions or how they put things together instead of stretching yourself to try and move out into a different direction. I think there, there was a uh, James Cars who is a professor of religion and history, wrote a book called uh, Finite and Infinite Games. And this is what he said. There are at least two kinds of games. One can be called finite, the other infinite. Finite games are the familiar, familiar contests of everyday life. They are played in order to be won, which is when they end. But infinite games are more mysterious. Their object is not winning, but ensuring the continuation of play. Infinite players cannot say when their game began, nor do they care. They do not care for the reason that their game is not bounded by time. Indeed, the only purpose of the game is to prevent it from coming to an end. Hmm. So if you approach your work in that way, then it takes a little bit of the pressure of expertise off of there and injects a little bit more creativity. And that is basically the only way to find your own voice, if you will. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, I kind of like that whole idea of infinite and finite games. So, you know, I mean, he, he makes the thing that he said, basically, you know, those finite games, familiar contests of everyday life. There's nothing that we have to separate like into sports or whatever, even though those are finite games mm-hmm. because there's a beginning and an end with, mm-hmm. with rules that are laid out, if you will. Right. But infinite games, no. Yeah, because I mean, it kind of it, it it is interesting when you talk about rules because we've had this conversation. That was the other one that we did, Carolyn. We talked about um, myth and reality. Oh, myths and realities. Yeah. 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 And um, that was a good one. Right. And, and we talked. I think my first question was, "So what are the rules?" And you're like, "There are none." And I was like, "Well, okay, that was the end of the podcast." But then <laughs> 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 we went on and talked uh, about an hour or more. But um, and I, I just remember that made me crack up laughing when the first question I asked you was like, well, nope, there are none. Uh-huh. Okay, so what are we going to talk about for the next hour? But yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's kind of interesting because I used to say something like that many years ago that, you know, the typical thing, you have to know the rules to be Before able to break, break them. them. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. But then, you know, at some point I just thought, no, this, this is, there's just too much misleading information that people think is written in stone, for example. So, you know, now I've come to the opinion that I think we ought to take all information that we call rules about art and put it in a file folder, label it suggestions. Then you can keep it handy somewhere if you want, because if you're more of a beginner painter, those things can be helpful, right? Right. You know, it just kind of gives you guidelines. And when you're beginning, you need guidelines. Yeah. So, but if that's not the case, just take that file folder labeled suggestions and stuff it in the closet and forget about it. So some things definitely work better than others. We all know that, you know, I mean, I'll I'll agree with that. You know, if you get a bunch of white paint on your canvas and you want to get something really dark, that white paint's going to be a problem if you put it down first, right? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of this is common sense. Yeah, exactly. But we don't, you know, I mean, you just have to stop and think. Um, we have rules about composition, for example, but they're just basic principles about balance and unity and emphasis. Right. So, and they're and they're also open to interpretation. Um, the things that I think maybe we should pay attention to sometimes are um, anything to do with science. So, fat over lean. You know, the process of painting. Don't put. Um, Thin paint down on top of thicker medium paint, for example, you know, that's kind of important if you don't want your paintings to crack. Right. That that part is science. So and then we have um, some science information about color. 
But that one, that one, I'm kind of adamant about, you know, explaining that to people. But that one has become so politicized in the world of art that it's difficult for artists to separate the science from personal preferences and someone else's recommendations. But it, it basically comes down to take everything with a grain of salt, you know? Right. So some, I think the, the big question is why we um, think we need all these rules. And I, I don't know. I guess there's a lot of them. I mean, different artists have different things. You know, like I said, if we labeled them suggestions, that whole language change would just make a huge difference in our perception about how important they are. Yeah. I or if they're important at all. Right. I was just to say, sometimes I think it's more of a control thing. It's like, you know, I say it's wrong, sure. therefore, you know, therefore it is. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a real fine balance there between control and exploration in a painting. We know right. we have to control some things. I mean, otherwise we're just kids finger painting, which, you know, might be fun, but it might be kind of tough to make a living at that. I don't know. Um, <laughs> But, but so that whole control and exploration has to kind of live together in the same space. But when we, the, that following somebody else's rules, unless there's some valid scientific reason for the, the rule, like fat over lean, mm-hmm. um, is, is where we run into problems. And then we just quiet our own voice. Right. Yeah, sometimes- because now we're concerned about what somebody else thinks we should be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I always went back to when someone, quote unquote, gave me a rule. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. I always came back. To, What's the technical reason why that's a rule? You know, like, give me the yeah. technical basis yeah. on why, like fat over lean, there's a technical basis. Uh-huh. So it's right. like, give me the technical basis and then I'll, I'll say, okay, I'll agree with you. That's a rule. And it's amazing how many times it, I don't want to say gets disproved, but it's just like when you start challenge yourself for what's the technical reason and like, you know, color there's, you've got, you know, we've talked color before with mm-hmm. the different wavelengths and the different things like that. I mean, there's some science behind some of those things. And, right. And then yeah. all of a sudden it becomes a technical reason why I should believe it versus, mm-hmm. you know, this, this whole, well, you shouldn't put, um, blue shadows in there for, you know, it's like somebody made up a rule that they don't like blue shadows, you know, so pretty much. Yeah. That's pretty much what it is. Right. But if there is, if there's blue in there, if you're seeing blue in there, if you're interpreting Mm -hmm. it as blue, right. What's wrong with putting blue in there? Yeah. Because, you know, ultimately it's, it's your painting. It's not that other person's painting. And I mean, what, what kind of world would we want to live in where all the paintings just all looked alike? They all look like they came out of the same school, if you will. Right. You know, they, they, they use the same colors and the same kinds of shadows. And so we, we don't want that in art. So yeah. we just have to, you know, I think it's just, here again, it's a, it's a language problem. Those, we, we just take the word rule and basically what we, we mean is this is a suggestion. You might try this. You know, it works a lot of the time. doesn't work all the time, but you know, Hey, so guidelines are, there's nothing wrong with guidelines. So, you know, that, that's okay. But the whole rule thing. So this is interesting because going back to that infinite and finite games. Uh So in a finite game, the rules are fixed until there is a winner, but in an infinite game, the rules must change during the course of play. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah, my mind's like going off yeah. in different directions now around, well, okay, now if yeah, I change this, should, what yeah. happens to, yeah. yeah. It should give people, people should have just a little bit more leeway in, in bringing some critical thinking skills to the act of painting here and, and just thinking your way through it sometimes mm-hmm. instead of just taking what someone else said. Here again, I want to clarify that because I teach workshops. I understand where people are coming from. They want to they want to know how an artist maybe mixes color or how, you know, we approach the canvas or whatever it may be. That's all good and useful information, but that doesn't mean that you need to take that and make it try and make it your own personal statement. Right. Use it more as a, a way to break through. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so and, what, and you may find something that, that works for you, you know, that you didn't, you know, try before and it might be useful, but that's just a part of the painting process. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's, 
I always get asked a lot of questions about, you know, well, can we copy masters? And it's like, well, you can, but one of the things you, know, you want to, one of the things you want to do when you're copying a master is understand what they were trying to accomplish. It's not what you may that's want That's part to of it. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it, it can be helpful because I, I think we can uh, learn a lot by actually um, putting those kinds of color notes together or yeah. using that kind of brushwork, for example. Yeah. Um, I have a little study that in my studio that I've had in there for years that was um, a copy of a small Soroya study. And, and the reason I did it was a friend of mine said, another painter, she said, I'm going to challenge you. She said, I want to see if you, how fast you can copy this painting. And it was a small study, so it was fairly straightforward and simple. And so we set a time limit of a half an hour, and I copied the painting. And, of course, it's so much fun to copy a painting in the sense that somebody else has already made all the hard decisions. Right. Right? Right. <laughs> I mean, the color harmony, the forms, the shapes, the cup, everything. Everything's mm -hmm. all done. All you got to do is just, you know. So it was fun. But anyway, I kept it because I like. Soroya's work what the heck and mm -hmm. you know I have this wonderful little painting and it sits in my studio as a reminder sometimes to pay attention to let's say values or color or whatever it may be yeah a lot of the times I, I I always enjoy copying a, a master from time to time just just because mm -hmm. you know it just gets my mind thinking in a little bit different way and exactly there was a whole series that I can't it may have been on the National Geographic uh, ones again where they they had Picasso and um, a first one was Einstein and then they, they did one on Picasso and I can't remember the name of the series but it was really interesting the the different you know you watched you watched him as a young man to his older age you know in his uh -huh. whole art journey and how he was constantly pushing himself I'm not a big Picasso fan. I'll be the first one right. to yeah. raise my hand and say, no, thank you. But uh -huh. just watching his journey and his constant renewing of himself that he went through to get mm -hmm. to where he ended up was very interesting to follow. And sure. um, like yeah. I said, I'm not the biggest Picasso fan, but after watching that series, it's like, wow, he really did challenge himself, you know, every time. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. but so from yeah. that standpoint, it was amazing to me. Um, I've run into times in, you know, a workshop. You've you've probably seen this too in your teaching, where, you know, someone will do a painting, and you'll go up to them and they'll say, "Yeah, I'm done," and he'll look at it and he'll kind of go, <laughs> "Really?" Now, I I, I get it if you run out of time. There are logical reasons for being done, okay? Sometimes it. <laughs> it's because you don't want to overwork your painting. You mm. want to set it aside and then come back and decide what to do with it. Right. Or, you know, a lot of times, especially in a studio setting like that with a bunch of people, you've just run out of time. You, you know, that's, right. that's it. So. Right. But but it'll be there will be time left, and they'll just go, oh, I'm done. And you kind of look at the painting, and you think, really? <laughs> and, you, and, and I'll say... Are you sure? Are you sure you're done? And they'll say, "Yeah, it's good enough." Oh, those are killer words. No, <laughs> Don't good say enough <laughs> never works. Okay, good. And there's no such thing. There should be no such thing in painting. Good enough. Right. You know. Yeah. It, it, no, and that's just what you're getting to and talking about Picasso. One other thing about Picasso too, and a lot of people don't make the connection, but I know a lot of them sub do, is that. You know, a lot of his work, too, was in studying other people, you know, like uh, African art, for example, mm -hmm. African masks. That's kind of fascinating because what happens, we don't, none of us live in a vacuum, even more being creative. So we will um, find aspects in something that speaks to us visually and then incorporate aspects of that in our own art. doesn't mean that we copy it. We right. just take elements that, you know, uh, are interesting. So that's part of finding your own voice too. Yeah. Yes. Kind of, um, yeah, I don't know. So it was, it was just, it's, it's interesting. The different, I mean, you brought up workshops and kind of stumbling. So kind of hang with me. But <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, it's like one of these things are, is I have always found it interesting when some folks go to workshops and it's, I don't know if it's, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't, don't see, I am fumbling. 
I don't, yeah, under, yeah. I don't understand like paying all that money to go to a workshop and then not trying something new. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You know, we, I guess we all come from our own place of what it is. I, I, I like to say that painting is kind of a sliding scale of everything. So right. if you assume that, let's say, for example, that we'll go with the most obvious. In, in realism, for example, mm -hmm. we have a sliding scale from ultra-realistic to yes. not realistic very much, right? Right. So there's a whole sliding scale. And, and we can do that with every aspect of painting, that whole sliding scale. And right. so I figured students are kind of like that, too, or people that are painting. We're all on these different sliding scales. Um, and, and the only problem with that is if we get stuck somewhere, you know, which you talked about at the beginning. But if right. we get stuck somewhere in a rut and we're unwilling to try something. So I agree. I think it's worthwhile to try something different. Um, Otherwise, I don't know why one would do a workshop, but um, but it's also fun for people to get out and paint. So maybe that's yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm certainly not saying that is right or wrong. I mean, like you said, right, it yeah. comes with their own agenda and what they want to do and and all that. But I it, and it took me a while to really um, step aside and say, you know, you've got somebody here that you can learn from that's you know got a lot more experience mm -hmm. than you have and and I always found that if I say, okay, I'm going to try this and to, to the person that I'm taking the workshop from, I'm, I'm going to try this, you know, this is mm -hmm. what we're going to try. And then all of a sudden the next thing I know is they're, they're going, well, maybe if we do this, because <laughs> you know? yeah, I, yeah. I get off in an area that's, you know, just really out there and wild. And, and it's just kind of like, yeah, it, it looks really bad, but now let's try to fix it. And it's amazing that route, um, what you learn when you, when you take that route and, Sometimes mm -hmm. I think I've even challenged some people that I've taken workshops from <laughs> to try and get it back to, you know, something that makes sense. And, you know, I don't have, as I told, tell my students, you know, I don't have a problem with just basically throwing a, something that I started out that didn't turn out the way I wanted it to because I was started experimenting. I don't have a problem with that sitting down in my workshop or in my studio for, you know, ever because I've learned something from it. And it's not right. so much, you know, this rule or that rule applied, but just that, you know, I just didn't like that particular thing that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, so, you know, yeah, it's, I guess, it, it, does it come back to like giving yourself permission to fail? Is that where we're going with some of this? Because I, well, I, I think that's, that's a big, big thing. I mean, you know, people are afraid of failing, of, let's say, doing a bad painting. Right. You know, and my take on that is there is there's not a one of us that hasn't done a bad painting. And in fact, I think most of what we do, well, I won't say most, but a lot of what we do is either mediocre or boring and doesn't, you know, rise to the occasion, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we just accept that we've all done bad paintings and what the heck is there to be afraid of? You know, yeah, I mean, seriously, I mean, the only time to be afraid of that <laughs> is, is maybe if you have a painting deadline for a show, you know, I mean, that, that can be a big, but, but generally it's like, why do we think that everything we do has to work and work equally well? Because it certainly is not going to. So here again, it's, it's not a game to win. It's, it's only one, you know, to try and do our best at. And if you kind of put uh, a different expectation on your painting, let's say, uh, then by golly, I want to do this really well, <laughs> you know, um, find something else to hang on that poor little painting instead of all your expectations for being a wonderful person or something or an exceptional artist. It can change your perspective about what it is that you're willing to do. And then the other thing, you can try things with, you know, maybe, maybe you get, you know, you've got a painting going and it's looking really good. And, and, and so you're afraid to try something because heaven only knows what's going to happen here. Right. You know, well, here again, if you're, if you're afraid at all about that, then I guarantee you, you aren't willing to take the risk to make that painting really work. But there are ways to control that without totally destroying a whole painting. So, for example, you might look at your painting and say, 
yeah, I like kind of where this is going, but it's it's really kind of dull. And you say, well, what are you going to have to do? Identify the problem, find a solution. So if the painting's looking dull, well, that basically means we're going to have to increase value ranges or value contrast or color. And you might say, well, by golly, I think I need some more color in a few places. So you go in and you, you pick something obvious and you put some stronger color in there. Now the key here, and I see this happen all the time, is if you do that and you just keep painting without backing away from your painting, you're gonna mush all that color into oblivion because as you're looking at a small area in your canvas, that color is gonna jump out and it's just gonna scream at you. But you have to approach it with the idea, okay, this is what I think I need to do and allow yourself some space to do it. Mm-hmm. And you know what I find is most of the time people know what's wrong with a painting, you know, or the most obvious things. They're just afraid to fix it. So you do that, but you can control it. You don't have to go in there and just fling a brush madly around. And if you're going to try a color out, you mix something up and you put it on the canvas and step back and look at it. Okay, is that kind of working or not working? And if it's kind of working, then maybe you want to kind of follow that little trajectory. And if it's not working, then all you have to do is say, okay, well, what's the problem? Does it need to be lighter, darker, warmer, or cooler? You know, and then you fix it. Right. But so, go ahead, Carl. No, I was just going to say, we just have to give ourselves some space to try things. It's not like you just go into the painting and willy-nilly, you know, splatter paint all over and say, oh, boy, now I just made a mess out of that. Well, yeah, no wonder, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> try something, you know. And then step back and look at it. Yeah. It's really kind of interesting. I was like, I've been working on a, um, I started a painting with my students and um, they like me to paint while they're painting as well. And then we get Uh in like discussions like this. So one of the things is I was painting this painting. I probably changed it five different times. And, and they're always in awe of the fact that I'm always constantly going, "Ah, I don't like that. And I scrape it out and I change it again. And, you know, Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. And I kind of do that on purpose because I, I don't want them to think that what they're doing is so precious. Exactly. That they can't do that. But, and that's one thing. Well, I, 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 I took myself right into, I, I changed this thing so many times. I ended up taking the star of the painting out <laughs> completely out. And I'm like sitting there going, why is this so hard? And, and uh-huh. two things hit me. First is, you know, it's like I, I did away with the star. Naturally, there was nothing in the painting that grabbed you and and held you. And I was just like, okay, so I did that. But the second thing was, is I was struggling with this thing so much that I ended up just putting it away and I came back to it. Mm-hmm. And it, it was just a real uh, awakening for me that, you know, I, I said to one of the students, I said, you know, I haven't struggled on a painting like this since, since I started painting. And it was just like, I really wonder if we avoid the struggle that mm-hmm. could get us to a great painting because we struggled so much in the beginning. It's just like, I don't want to struggle anymore. I want it to just be perfect. And mm-hmm. I just, you know, and, and you know, that fear of struggling because I struggled so much in the beginning, but just, yeah, I also tell them, I also tell my students, think about how proud you felt when you painted that painting the way you wanted to. And even though you had a struggle to get there, you know, when you sign your name mm-hmm. on it, how proud are you of that? Exactly. Of that journey yeah. that you took. So I don't yeah. think we talk about the struggle that much. I think. No, we- it's, it's hard work. There's, there's just no two ways about it. It's, it's not, it's not a process of just developing enough skill so you can just copy what it is that you're seeing. That isn't what painting is. So there, there's a lot of uh, give and take and push and pull and, uh, and there should be a fair amount of thought in there. You know, I like to say, uh, you know, more thinking, less brushing, you know, yes. would do us all a lot of favors sometimes. Yes. <laughs> um, so, but, but you don't want to be thinking too much while you're in the process of painting. I'm not saying that mm-hmm. you need to give yourself the space to be able to evaluate what it is that you're painting. But um, yeah, I, you know, like I said, you know, we, we do bad paintings. We do them all the time. We, you know, we, we could do bad paintings blindfolded, right? You know, oh, yeah. so don't be afraid of it. What's the heck, what's the worst that can happen is that you, you know, you would mess up your painting, big friggin' deal, start it over. You well, <laughs> and you know what, and if, if everybody shared their fail, failed paintings on Facebook, well, the whole world would be totally different, right? Well, <laughs> that's the other thing, too, is because those of us that have, let's say, large art book collections on, 
you know, artists throughout history, mm-hmm. um, they don't they don't put the worst paintings in there by any means. No. Museums don't necessarily. You know, sometimes you'll see they'll pull out some of the studies and some of the things that were not as good. But by and large, you know, all the stuff that we're familiar with is the the better work. But right. all the all those great artists, believe me, they did paintings that did not work as well. Also, so it's just a matter of trying to you know. The, the other thing to remember, it's oil paint, for heaven's sake. Right, right. If you have a section of the painting that's not working, scrape it off. Yep. You know? Yep. That's what I, I want to share with you one of the first instructors, <clears throat> excuse me, down at the, the art center where I was taking lessons at, said to me, it, and it was like really depressing when he said it, but I so get it now. He says, Linda, you have 10 great paintings in you. The rest are just practice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's probably pretty good. Yeah. 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 And I sat there and laughed. You know, like I said, it was really depressing when it said it to me because I was like, only 10? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was just trying to make a point about well, what we're talking we about. We have to remember, too, that we hang everything a lot of the time. And I get it if you're in the business of art and you need to sell your paintings, but we right. hang it on what somebody else is going to think. Yes. Well, no, it's not their painting, you know? Mm-hmm. So at some point you just need to step up and just own it. And if somebody else doesn't like it, you know, I have a great story going from way back when, um, when I was starting out, when I made the switch from pastels to oil painting and I had a a person that did my framing for me at the time. She was also an artist and I had done this. So, you know, go back to the idea, you know, I was new to oil painting. I had been in pastels before that. So I was new to oil painting kind of finding my way and I did a painting of a magpie you know the bird the magpie Mm -hmm. and um I liked it and I took it over her to her to have her frame it because I had a show I was going to in Washington and I set it down on her framing table she looked at it and she just started laughing (laughs) thank you well yeah pretty much (laughs) okay but there's a happy ending to this story so I didn't care I had her frame the painting anyway I liked it I took that painting to a show in Washington and William Reese came in to my exhibit space. And now, you know, for those of us, Bill Reese was a, uh, a hero to a lot of people in the, the Northwest. You know, he's, he's gone now, but he was just a phenomenal artist. He, oil painting, pastels, watercolors, sculpture, you name it. He, and, and I had Bill's uh, first book, which I used to look at all the time. I was just, you know, this is just amazing because I was trying to, he had pastels in there, but I was trying to learn oil painting. So I just found his sense of color and um, how he used information just to be just so exciting. Well, Bill walks into my room and he looks at all my work and he said, would you consider trading a painting? Well, I almost fell through the floor, you know, (laughs) I mean, hello. And he said, but first of all, you have to raise your prices because you're too cheap. <laughs> <laughs> and then guess what painting he picked? Your he magpie. picked that painting of the magpie. Oh, cool. So that was something at least I could kind of take with me the following years because sometimes you just have to trust yourself. Right. And it's it's not somebody else's painting. It's your painting. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, well, we've been chatting for a while, so I'm going to um, say this is probably our last question, and it may go really, okay. really quick because we've been giving advice through this whole, you know, interwoven with all of our conversations. So, but uh, the last thing I had written down on question was any advice for challenging ourselves. Do you have any advice for us? Mm, yes, I do. Okay, it go kind of goes back to <laughs> it. Kind of, it kind of goes back to that part where we were talking about finding your own voice. Yes. So, you know, I think I said, you know, too many painters jump from one thing to the next and trying out the latest fad or the latest technique or something instead of saying, and this is what we have, this is a space we have to allow ourselves. Yes. I really like that, but it's not how or what I want to paint. I mean, that's the important key. Mm -hmm. So you have to find the intent and the integrity in your own work that will drive it forward. And so I have um, a tip that I hope will help other people because I know years ago it helped me. So if you don't understand what it is that you really, really like, and I'm talking about visual information 
you know, regarding painting. Go through your art books, pick out a few paintings that you like. Now study those paintings and ask yourself which of those paintings um, if you would choose if you could own it, hang it on your wall, and have to look at it every day for the rest of your life. Now let's just start narrowing things down. You can find a lot of paintings I think we all do that we like. We're just so amazed by them or whatever it may be. But now narrow it down. If, if you could own this painting and, and hang it in, the house, in your house for the rest of your life, which one would you pick? Well, you should be able to start narrowing things down. So do that and then do it for another group of paintings and, you know, until you get down to your forever painting, if you will. And in the process of doing this, you should narrow your focus onto some elements, visual things that you really respond to. Not what you think you should respond to, but what you really respond to. So it can be, I mean, there can be a range of things here. I mean, we could go from... Uh, you know, subject matter, I mean, I, you know, I'll throw that one out there, even though that's not my fave, but subject matter, it can be uh, realistic, super realistic, it could be more abstract, it can be, now we start talking about color, there can be a whole range of things in here from, you know, brighter color to subdued color to suggested color, it can be value patterns, you have to figure out what it is that you really respond to. And that's one way that I know that you can do that. And once you do that, then, here again, that gives you a little bit of a path to follow. So it gives you the space to say next time you're awestruck by somebody else's painting and you go, oh, I wish I could paint like that, you can say to yourself, no, I like that painting, but it's not what I want. Mm -hmm. And if you can get to that place, then it gives you a little bit more space to, um, you know, experiment, if you will, be, you know, try a few risks or be a little riskier with, you know, what you try. So it's, to me, that's just one of, you know, the most important things you can do is to figure out what it is that within a range, and, it, and this doesn't necessarily have to be completely fixed because, I, you know, our tastes do change over time, but a lot of times there are certain visual elements that we will respond to no matter what. You know, that, that's not based on the style thing. Maybe that's the difference between style and voice here. You know, mm -hmm. that would be our voice and not our style. But right. there should be something there that should um, carry through. Yeah. So the other thing, which I hear again, I think is really important, is um, to try and describe the information in a different way. Hmm. And, I, and we've talked about this before. But it's a language problem. So avoid naming the thing whenever possible. Ask yourself what describes the form and not what is the form. Mm. Because that's what we're do doing is describing the form, right? Right. So, yeah, it, it, it can change everything, you know. Yeah, I, that's interesting because I, I'm thinking about I got a couple of beginner students and, and we start with, you know, we start the sphere, the cylinder, the cone, you know, and, and uh -huh. try to make that more 3D. But again, that's foundation. Right. Something to reference. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you're yeah. going to paint that way for the rest of your life. Exactly. And, and how many of your paintings would, you know, you want just a <laughs> cylinder or a sphere in? I mean, you know, yeah. there's only, you could, also, and primary colors, no doubt. I mean, there's only right. so many ways you could, um, do that by delineating those objects. I mean, you could move them around in the picture plane and create, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're dealing with far more variables. Yeah, exactly. And so, you yeah. Know, one of the richest and, concepts um, that, that you end up getting into when, when you start them out with these four basic shapes is, you know, okay, now we're going to talk about a concept called negative space. <laughs> and that is like, what? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, that whole, that whole conversation. So yeah. So when you were talking, I was going, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you're, you're, if you consider, you know, and I, and here again, I wish it weren't the language of negative and positive because mm -hmm. you know, language really gets in the way. Yeah, but negative space is as important as your positive space. Yes. It's not just an aside, you know? Yes. Um, and so if you can, if you can avoid naming the thing, it will really, you know, say not what is the form, what describes the form, and then avoid, when you start your painting, avoid using outlines, you know, something that makes a continuous line around a thing, because once you do that, now you have automatically 
set yourself on a path of separating things from the canvas hmm. instead of looking at the shapes in the spaces of that canvas. Hmm. Now, you can still describe the information because obviously you have to start somewhere, but do it in a little bit more creative way, which would be what describes the form. And what you're going to find is light and shadow, and that gets back to, you know, if you make a mark on the shadow side and leave it open on the light side or part, partly open, whatever. Mm-hmm. You get the idea. But that changes how you start seeing the space of your canvas. Right. Sounds kind of silly, but it works. Yeah, absolutely. So, Carolyn, is there anything else? Before I... I have a quote. I have yeah, a quote. Okay. I wrote this. I, I put this down in, in uh, honor of the late, great Mary Oliver. Mm. The most regretful people on earth are those who felt the call to creative work, who felt their own creative power restive and uprising and gave it neither power nor time. Oh, wow. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah. That's about it. Okay. Well, I always appreciate talking to you. You know that. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah. So, and, and I had a wonderful time the time you came to, to my little town here and I liked your town. Your town was great. Ah, <laughs> oh, great. Thank Middletown thanks you. <laughs> so Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so so it's been a, a fun talk with you. I appreciate you, like I said, being on again. Um it's always interesting talking with you and, and certainly does you know give me a lot to think about and I think you give a lot uh to our listeners as well to think about. So always great. Well I am I am glad to share, and thanks to you for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, so it sounds good. So um, coming up, just for those that uh, would like to know what's coming up in the March uh, March timeframe, uh, Mandy Thies uh, from the Da Vinci Institute will be joining us, and I'm also pulling together a for the the writers out there, the authors out there that listen to the show. Um, I'm pulling together a art chat, hopefully with a movie producer. And we're going to be talking about the process of taking your book and novel and or uh, short story and turning that into uh, something, a script, and then what happens after it becomes a script. Um, just kind of uh, out there, <laughs> conversation out there that that's going to happen at some point. So that's what's coming up in March. Again, thank you, Carolyn. And um, I hope that uh, we'll be talking probably soon, I'm sure, so in the future. Okay. Okay. So yes, thanks. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in.